1: Everyone listening to this show knows of the outpouring of grief that followed the death of Abraham Lincoln in 1865, but the ceremonial journey of his remains from Washington to Springfield and his 12 funerals did not occur in a vacuum. Up to now, scholars have paid relatively little attention to the public funeral traditions that were used with other famous figures in the Civil War era or the way in which those funerals expressed Americans' views on secession, war, and reconciliation. But that changes with the new book, Spectacle of Grief, Public Funerals and Memory in the Civil War Era. It's written by Professor Sarah J. Purcell, and Professor Purcell joins us to talk tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
2: Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, home of the Pirates. Not speaking for the Pirates, not representing anyone but myself as always. Likewise, my guest speaks only for herself as we do here. It is the middle of June 2022. It is the middle of the NCAA baseball tournament. Last weekend, the Pirates won the regional tournament here in Greenville. I'm still a quiver from the events of the past weekend. The uh, four teams came to the Greenville regional. Uh, the Pirates are the host team. And we won, uh, won the tournament. The decisive game was played Monday afternoon. I, I was there at all four games I had the experience of sitting in the jungle which is the <clears throat> excuse me the outfield at uh, Clark Leclaire Stadium if you ever come to Greenville in springtime get yourself to a pirate baseball game and uh, in the outfield just behind the fence there's a, a berm an elevated uh, piece of landscaping that people stand on, or actually sit on to watch the games. Uh, You bring your own chair if you want to, and so hundreds, literally maybe thousands of people, uh, they got 5,000 into the stadium for a new attendance record, so there are probably 2,000 of us out in the jungle. Uh, Bring your own chair, get there real early so you get a decent place to set it up, and then you watch from there. And there are trees growing along, so it's all shaded during a hot uh, afternoon game. It's very pleasant and that's why they call it the jungle I gather because of the, the forest growing out there and if you want to see what it looks like and see me at the same time, a double bonus, uh, watch a replay of the Monday game between ECU and Coastal Carolina and when uh, Pirate center fielder Bryson uh, Worrell hits a decisive home run in the 7th inning it flies right over my head I, uh, as the camera pans out you see the fans in the jungle we all stand up as the ball flies toward us and I'm the, the central figure there uh, turning to watch the ball go onto the football practice field behind the jungle it was a huge home run and then turning around to join in cheering with the other pirate fans it's a good thing I was not playing hookie from work because there I was on national TV being exposed I was at the ball game uh Now the Pirates play in the Super Regional. There are only 16 teams left in the national tournament. And this weekend, the University of Texas comes to Greenville to play the Pirates in a three-game series. It's also the weekend, however, of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. And I am committed to going there. It is one of those sacrifices we make for the academic life sometimes. hardly a sacrifice. Civil War Institute is a great event, and I'm anxious for it. But this will be the first time the super regional has been played in Greenville. You have to be one of the top eight teams in the country to host it, and that's where we are this year. And finally, if you can't, uh, if you just want to enjoy some of this vicariously, you can wear the appropriate T-shirt. After hearing the announcers on ESPN more than one time refer to uh, my employer as Eastern Carolina University, and. Uh, on one occasion, discuss how far away it was from Chapel Hill, hundreds of miles, hundreds of miles from Virginia, it became clear that they thought we were in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, So you can go now to impedimentsofwar.org, click on the link to merchandise to the Civil War Talk Radio t-shirts, and for a limited time, I've put up a Eastern Carolina University t-shirt in Greenville, South Carolina. You can celebrate along with... uh, with me the ignorance of espn uh in fact it even says as seen on epsn i thought i'd get their letters wrong just for good measure Uh, so you can get the 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 very rare uh, eastern carolina university t-shirt until some copyright lawyer sees it and makes me close it down Uh, it's up there for a while Uh, i put it up this afternoon june 8 2022 i've already sold one T-shirt, and I know that because I'm the one who bought it. I want to get one for myself. But if you want to be the second, uh, don't be late. Go to uh, Impediments of War. You can also see the rest of the season schedule, but that's easy. There's only one more show. We're almost done. Next week, I'll report on the Civil War Institute to you on June 15th, and then I'll wrap us up for the season. We'll be back in the fall with many, many new episodes of Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks to everyone who's donated over the semester, over the year, who's listened to the show, who's suggested uh, possible guests for the show. Always much appreciated. And thanks to all who've written to me. I've been catching up on email. Some of you are getting replies from me this week from messages you sent weeks or even months ago. I apologize for that. Uh, I, I may be slow, but I will respond if you write to me. And uh, Thanks for, for those of you who've done that. Tonight, we talk about funerals in the Civil War era. Not just any funerals, but big public funerals. The title of the book is Spectacle of Grief, Public Funerals and Memory in the Civil War Era. And the author is Sarah J. Purcell. Professor Purcell, are you there?
3: Yes, I am. Hello.
1: Hello. Welcome to the show. May I call you Sarah? Is, is that?
3: Yes, please, uh, okay? if I can call you Jerry.
1: Please do. Don't. Don't. It would take much too long to do anything else. Um, Excellent. So uh, I'm delighted to have you on the show. Enjoyed this book. It's a. Uh, uh, I, I learned a lot from it. It, it is, uh, in some ways, a challenging, uh, conceptually challenging book. has has a, an argument that that one can sink one's teeth into, but it also tells us a lot about. Uh, Th- about a topic that that most of us don't think about, so let me ask you why why funerals? what got you interested in this topic to
3: begin with it is a great it is a great question thank you i'm I'm glad that you uh found a lot to sink your teeth into yeah, well, funerals um you know they don't stand out as maybe the first thing uh civil war historians would think about. Um I really came to the topic of funerals um from my earlier work. um I have written a lot of previous scholarship on the period of the post-American revolutionary period, the early republic, 1790s through the 1820s. And um, I wrote a book about the public memory of the Revolutionary War. And there were a number of funerals that played a role in that era. And um, very notably, George Washington's funeral in 1799 was one of the um, one of the largest funerals for that time. Um, it was a big political funeral, and there were lots. There was a whole tradition of public funerals in colonial revolutionary America. So I was sensitized to that topic. That was just a part of my work on that period, and then um, I've also been working on the Civil War and teaching Civil War history for um, several decades, twenty five years. And, of course, as you mentioned in the introduction, um, everyone's familiar with Lincoln's funeral. And the more I taught about it, the more I became interested in research um, on the Civil War period. And so I started looking into it, and I'm a scholar of memory, and it turned out that It wasn't just Lincoln's funeral. There was actually a a line between uh, Washington and Lincoln and many important funerals in between and a big turning point um, on the eve of the the Civil War. And so it was kind of a topic I was interested in, the form of the funeral. It's a time when um, people usually are habituated to say the nicest of things about the deceased, Mm-hmm. Um, and to come together and have a unifying statement, but of course um, it doesn't always work that way. And so it's interesting to look at the disjunctures, and there's, there's a lot that's revealed in um, what's said and what isn't said, and in very, very large um, Funerals, both state funerals and and funerals that are that are more spontaneously organized um, in all different walks of life, so I started looking into it, and the more I looked, the more I found and I think you 're right that it 's not something um, folks have paid much attention to, and that 's a rare thing in civil war history to find a topic that hasn 't been um, super well explored before. So all those things came together to really make it an interesting topic. And, and I, uh, I think, and I, I'm pretty sure that I have something to say that lots of people will be interested in.
1: Well, I, I, I found it interesting, I will say. The, uh, you, you say George Washington you know, set a model for the, the big American public funeral, and, uh, and you connect the, the early national period to the Civil War period, in your opening chapter, you start with the funeral of Henry Clay, 1852. Why, uh, why, why start with Henry Clay? What what was significant about his funeral in in the Civil War context? Yeah, well, War his context? funeral. Um,
3: first of all, you really have to start with Clay because his funeral really is a turning point in the history of public funerals per se. So Washington's mm-hmm. funeral was a big national um, deal with many many church services, mock funerals, and printed sermons. But the size of public culture and also, I would say, technology and a number of other factors meant that it was still much more limited than what was possible in the 19th century after the advent of the telegraph and railroads and steam printing and, you know, everything speeded up and there was much more media and popular culture in the 19th century. And the first um, really large-scale funeral that that benefited from that or, or really displayed that was Henry Clay in 1852. And equally, I don't think that most of us would write or speak or teach about the Civil War without talking about the antebellum period and talking mm-hmm. about the fracturing of the Union. And um, you don't just start, you know, with, uh, in the election of 1860 or with the war in 1861. You need to explain a little bit of the context. And so Clay's funeral, in its scale... And in many of the aspects of the funeral, um, such as the travel of the body uh, by train and steamboat, um, the outpouring of print culture and images, um, the use of popular culture and material culture, and the, the politicization and the political disagreements over Clay's funeral, um, those all set the pattern for funerals during and after the Civil War that explored the memory of the war. And so um, I don't think, I mean, even Lincoln's funeral makes a lot more sense once you look at Clay's funeral. Um, it's Because those who are familiar with Lincoln's funeral will see, oh, well, a lot of those things had happened before, and they started really in 1852.
1: Well, let's talk about what, what exactly happens in Clay's funeral. What, what, can you describe what, what the process was? what the event was
2: like?
3: Yes, so Clay died um, in Washington, D.C., while still a sitting U.S. senator, and he received um, basically a state funeral in Washington, D.C., with lots of congressional and senatorial eulogies. He also was the first American to lie in state in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol, so that's another way in which he, he starts a pattern which continues even up to this day. So he lay in state, um, thousands of people, um, came to see his body. He was not embalmed. He was actually preserved in an airtight, uh, I put that in air quotes because the seal actually failed later, but Ooh. an airtight, um, <laughs> cast iron coffin called a Fisk Patent Coffin. Um, and then he, he wished to be buried in, um, Lexington, Kentucky, his home, um, near his home of, of Ashland. And they moved his body, um, on Trains and steamboats, primarily, um, taking the body off of trains and into major cities. And the body traveled all throughout um, the northeastern seaboard, um, through New Jersey, New York, um, up into the interior of the country, down to Ohio, down the Ohio River by steamboat. And along the way, um, he Clay was taken off the train, taken off the steamboat, and major... Um, celebrations, um, people could visit the body, um, there were ceremonies in major cities, a torch lit procession in Baltimore, uh, funeral ceremonies in New York City, um, and, and all throughout until his body, um, got hundreds of miles later, um, to Lexington, Kentucky, where, um, he then had a very massive funeral with something like 100,000 people visiting the town of Lexington. Um, you know, the, everyone, has different estimates, but, and all the while, while the body was traveling, um, over a little more than a week, um, the newspapers followed with rapt attention and reported in almost simultaneous daily updates, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of articles all over the country, um, really from coast to coast, um, about the procession of the body, um, some arguments over politics, it was actually, um, taking place, um, during, Uh, I don't know, conflict over the Whig nomination for president, um, also right after that. So um, lots and lots of political discussion, um, cheek by jowl with reports of Clay's traveling funeral, um, and then culminating in his burial in Lexington.
1: Look, the question of politics is one I want to get to next, but we're going to take a short break first. We'll come right back, talk more with our guest tonight, Sarah J. Purcell. She's the author of Spectacle of Grief, Public Funerals and Memory in the Civil War Era. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
2: Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ECU. Dot E-D-U. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Sarah J. Purcell. She is the L.F. Parker Professor of History at Grinnell College and the author of Spectacle of Grief, Public Funerals and Memory in the Civil War Era. We've been talking about the funeral of Henry Clay in 1852, the the biggest funeral since that of George Washington, multi-state affair, the body going city to city, state to state, so sorry, you mentioned uh, you know technology is a factor you've got railroads and and steamboats involved for the first time you've got the telegraph bringing news uh, allowing coordination of this event on this scale uh, politically, clay is the great compromiser and and you you suggest in the book that that part of the funeral is not just mourning the death of clay but but concern over the fate of of compromise in the union is that yeah. uh, Something we can read into this funeral?
3: Yes, I don't. I don't think we even have to try too hard to read it in because people mm-hmm. said it uh, as such, uh, both in newspapers and in eulogies. And kind of, um, I think it also amplified the scale of the morning um, because there was a, I, I think, for lack of a better term, an anxiety: um, what would happen to the union now that the Great Compromiser was gone? Um, and you know, compromise was already showing strain. After the Compromise of 1850 and the Fugitive Slave Act, plenty of strain by 1852, and, um, that some of that got projected onto the mourning for Clay. Um, and, it, but even that itself was the subject of some political disagreement because. For instance, um, abolitionists um, argued that um, no ink or tears should be spilled mourning Henry Clay, and it was a good thing that compromise was dead. Right, so um, probably the, they're really the only group that that flat out rejected public mourning for for Henry Clay, um, including Frederick Douglass, interestingly, um, and. Who, who really said, well, it's good that he died, and it, and it's good that compromises died. So even they equated Clay with compromise, um, you know, in their case, compromise with slavery. But lots of concerns about um, fracture in the Union, um, and even the fracturing of, uh, to a certain degree, weakness in the Whig Party, you know, of yes. which Clay was the standard bearer. So... Um, lots of different strains of kind of rising anxiety about um, the political fortunes of the United States, Um, and they get expressed in a very ceremonial um, way around clay, or in a rejection of that ceremony, as with the abolitionists.
1: Now, in your book you use, you open with clay and you use a number of other funerals as examples. When we get to the war era, you have a chapter on the, the funerals of Elmer Ellsworth and Stonewall Jackson. Uh, Ellsworth was an interesting choice. Uh, it was just I think, two weeks ago, uh, Meg Groling was on the show here to talk about her new biography of Ellsworth, someone we hadn't had a new book about him since, I think, 1960, maybe. Uh, yeah. The, the Randall book. And and suddenly uh, we learned from, from this new author just how important... And, and how famous Ellsworth was. And so, so your book, with impeccable timing, shows how he fits into this pattern of funerals for famous people. Um, you can't control that as an author. Sometimes a book comes out and it's uh, complimentary and sometimes it's, it, it, it fits your work and sometimes it comes along and uh, seems to preempt it. That can be very frustrating. But this, this I thought, worked beautifully. Uh, tell us about the Ellsworth funeral.
3: Yes, well, um I, I think his fame and uh, like you say it is very complimentary to his biography because El- both Ellsworth's fame um and his leadership of um in the pre-war era of his so-called, you know, cadets, his Zoav cadets um mm-hmm. and his connection his personal connections with Abraham Lincoln, um he had been Lincoln's um law student in Springfield, Illinois. Um, both of those factors, um, I think, amplified the public grief um, and also just the attention of President Lincoln, because Lincoln, you know, he was he was a dear friend and, and thought of as a dear one. So it, having that side of the biography is a real help, as you say. So Ellsworth, um, he was killed, um, not... Depending how you squint at it in action, but um, as as his uh, company was helping to uh, subdue Alexandria, Virginia, in May of 1861, with um, kind of an uninteresting action. I mean, not much, not much resistance. But he spied on atop the Marshall House Hotel, which was the uh, main hotel there in Alexandria. Um, a very large Confederate national flag, which was flying there, uh, by the hotel keeper James Jackson, and he was a real fire eater, and he um, he claimed before this the, the hotel keeper that he was flying that in or, as a provocation, you know, in order so that people across the Potomac and D.C. could see the Confederate national flag. So Ellsworth um, went with a few of his men and said, well, boys, we'll have that flag down. And they went up to the top of the roof. They cut down the Confederate national flag. And then um, as they came back down the stairs, um, Jackson came out and shot Ellsworth. And Ellsworth's aide, um, Corporal Francis Burnell, um, shot and impaled uh, Jackson. So both Ellsworth and Jackson, uh, James Jackson, the innkeeper, were killed. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it was just right at the beginning of the war, right? And there were a few other um, folks who had died, uh, Baker, you know, there are a few other officers who were involved in early action, but this was really the one that made the biggest impression at the beginning of the war because um, Colonel Ellsworth was an officer and because he was so beloved of Lincoln. So he was given um, a funeral in the White House. Um, by Lincoln, and then um, similar to what I said about Clay, also prefiguring Lincoln, um, he, he was embalmed, and his body traveled, um, not as far as Clay's, because he was from upstate New York, but um, traveled from Washington, D.C. on a special ceremonial train, um, stopping in Baltimore and, and New York City uh, for uh, additional public mourning, and then uh, on to his hometown of Mechanicville for burial. But his he then became a cause celebra, and it was focused around his death and his memory. Remember, Ellsworth became a rallying cry in union recruitment. Um, there were scores of uh, prints of Ellsworth and uh, you know commemorative envelopes and uh, et cetera, et cetera, all kinds of public culture. And... Conversely, and interestingly, James Jackson, the man who killed Ellsworth, was also heroicized in the the nascent Confederacy, and so um, they were kind of – he was a lesser martyr, perhaps, but a Confederate martyr who matched Ellsworth – uh, although most of, the, most of the print culture, you know, the preponderance of it was, was still um, in the North. So lots and lots of newspaper articles. It's interesting. Ellsworth is interesting because he's someone who isn't so famous today. And mm-hmm. his death certainly became eclipsed, right, very quickly in the war. But at the time in May of 1861 and in through 1861, it was an absolutely huge, huge event. Um, and the, the morning... Um, had a lot to do with I, I would call it psychological cultural mobilization for the war
1: the uh you have an interesting discussion of how to react to the death of someone like this and the fact that lincoln uh is literally crying over when he gets the news just as as you point out uh, in, in the same chapter robert e lee sheds tears over stonewall jackson's death uh, that these funerals have codes of conduct. There's a way for people to behave, and it's a very gender-specific way to behave. Uh, are, are Lincoln's tears an acceptable response? Uh,
3: yeah, I mean, it's, you're totally right. They, they were acceptable, but I think they pushed against the limits of acceptability. So I would say that the way his tears themselves were certainly acceptable for... For a uh, mm-hmm. sentimental, manly feeling, um, the definition of you know a, a masculinity that allowed a lot more friendly feeling in the 19th century. But mm-hmm. the way Lincoln's tears get talked about in the press, and and even framed, um, and then critiqued by Confederates, um, mm-hmm. I think that they did. Uh, it pushed the limits of that masculinity, and um, it was a question of whether perhaps the tears were excessive. And it's not just Lincoln. It's also echoed in um, the tears of a great many soldiers, the tears of people who came out in procession to see Ellsworth's body, um, the tears that are shed um, by family members, and so there's kind of this linking of the president's tears and the tears of the public. Um, and little did they know that in a way um, that would prepare them, was helping to prepare them for the great sorrow and loss of life that was to come in the war. But I, I think that it there was a contest over what was the acceptable form of of, ma- we would now call it masculinity, right, or manhood in the 19th <laughs> century, and the point being that, okay, you have these sentimental tears, but it's not enough just to cry, it's supposed to then spur you to action, and so it's fine to cry, but then you must enlist, um, then you must press forward with the kind of martial masculinity, martial manhood on the other side, um, and so I, I think it's when the two are twinned that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it also played into, I um, so, uh, talk in the book, some arguments over um, the the manhood of Ellsworth's troops who were, by and large, recruited from New York City firefighters um, and were zoabs and... Were very tough characters themselves, mm-hmm. and um, the way that they were turned into possibly uh, an especially threatening image of masculinity. So you can have Confederates kind of have it both ways, where they critique President Lincoln for perhaps being womanish in his tears, and then at the same time, Ellsworth's men are are a, a fiery, threatening form of manhood, and so um, it's it's a it's a really interesting to see how. That makes a difference in the way people are reacting um, to the death, and then how that gets related to the war itself. So it isn't really just relating to Ellsworth; it's it's about losing Ellsworth, but then what's going to happen in the war because of that?
1: Yeah, Stonewall Jackson, on the other hand, is, is the ideal manly Southern hero, Christian, uh, you know, soft-spoken but but fierce, emotionally controlled. Uh, he becomes a martyr instantly upon his death. He, he he he's part of the lost cause, Trinity, Lee Davis, and Jackson later. But but he doesn't wait for the war to end. He he immediately falls into that pattern uh, as you described. But he doesn't have a big funeral.
3: Right. Um. He doesn't. I mean, he has the biggest funeral that. Um, that Confederates can muster at that moment in 1863. It's very difficult um, in the midst of the war. And so the conditions of the war um, really reduce the size of the public mourning. And they do move his body, you know, to Richmond, where he's given kind of a form of a Confederate state funeral, um, which has been, which which has received some attention and was a big deal in Richmond, but mm-hmm. even, you know, Richmond was so swollen with refugees and under a lot of stress itself, even as the, the capital, right, um, that it was impossible to have anything approaching, let's say, Elmer Ellsworth. I mean, if we look back now, we would see that Jackson is so much more important militarily than Ellsworth ever was. Right. But um, his funeral is actually a lot smaller, um, and also that by that point, um, southern newspapers were very stressed. You know, it wasn't possible to print uh, prints for people to put up in their homes. Right, all all of the kind of um, uh, sort of apparatus of popular culture was so stressed by the war. And then he was um, moved to Lexington um, again. His body was moved, and there people did line the route and were able to see it, but. Um, you know, Lee even said explicitly to some of his men, "You know, I can't spare you to go mm-hmm. um, to be with the body, to go to the funeral. You have to stay in the fight, and and we can't we can't let the collective mourning basically overwhelm um, what's needed for the war effort. But it, it's enough of a of a public funeral to um, to really get." Get that lost cause uh, started off with a with a with a funeral, um, and that's important. Um, I also think that it's it's important that it started with a funeral and with eulogies and obituaries. So, um, kind of you know some, even some northern even some Republican newspapers, toying with. Discussing um, Jackson's merits and his his Christianity and his self-control all the things you mentioned um, you know the things that made him a renowned Christian gentleman, so to speak, um, <laughs> while also not shying away from calling him a traitor, for instance um, it's so the Lost Cause starts with l- the literal loss of Jackson. And there, similar to what I said about Henry Clay, some anxiety about what would happen now that the Great Compromiser was gone. Um, there's a, f- a lot of evidence of, of Confederate anxiety of, you know, what's going to happen now that Stonewall Jackson is gone. Um, and that, pre- in, in a way, it kind of prefigures a little bit the Lost Cause, right? That, that he won't be there to continue the fight. Um, And so it's an interesting, um, both cultural, again, culture and and military action kind of going hand-in-hand in in people's thoughts about what's going to happen.
1: You address uh, a number of other funerals, and then we'll we'll talk about as many as we can squeeze in. Uh, One that was particularly interesting, because it's somebody that I'm going to guess most listeners are not familiar with, is is George uh, Peabody or Peabody? I'm not. Does it pronounced like the town in Massachusetts? Or? It's
3: pronounced like Peabody. Yes, the town okay. in Massachusetts is named after him, and they will insist it's Peabody. <laughs>
1: yes, uh, I lived in Brookline like for. Peabody. Yes, for nine years, so I, I learned a few of the the local pronunciations <laughs> there. Uh, so George Peabody is not a household name uh, today, plus even among Civil War uh listeners not not even like elmer ellsworth is he has a funeral in 1870 i think it is do i have that yes. right uh yes and it it's a big deal so we have like two minutes till the break uh get us started on who he is and we'll we'll take a break and find out more who is this yeah guy? well
3: Peabody was a tremendously interesting figure he was uh a uh, son of Massachusetts um, from the town then named after him later, um, but lived most of his adult life in England, um, mostly in London, um, and he was a tremendously wealthy um, man of capital. He had a lot of different businesses, investments, um, and also a philanthropist. He prefigures um, the great philanthropists and uh, magnets of the later 19th century, um, and he was very much um, a booster of the United States in England. Uh, he was beloved of Queen Victoria and of English society, but still very much an American. He sponsored the 4th of July celebration for American expats in London every year. Um, and, and he supported the U.S. government in the Civil War um, with financial support and tried to smooth over U.S.-British relations. But he was also a close friend of Robert E. Lee, or a friendly with Robert E Lee, and after the Civil War he very much supported um, a rec- version of reconstruction that was friendly to former Confederates and to kind of reconstructing the South along the lines of the best men that, you know getting education. He donated um, hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, equivalent of millions of dollars today millions and millions of dollars. Um, To Southern education, also to some Northern educational institutions, um, many of which have things named Peabody. You might think of the um, the Education School at Vanderbilt University, for instance, is named after him because he gave money to establish a teachers college in Tennessee. And 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 we I believe
1: I'd say he also I know he gave money to Harvard University, which gives me a chance to remind uh, everyone listening that I have a degree from Harvard. Have (laughs) to do that at least weekly uh, in order to get my money back over. Uh, decades <laughs> of, of amortization. We're going yes, to take a yes, short break. His,
3: and his, uh, <laughs> he supported sciences and musical education, um, but was then especially interested um, after the Civil War in, in uh, Southern and, education.
1: But we will come back to that topic in just a moment. We're talking tonight with Sarah J. Purcell, author of Spectacle of Grief, Public Funerals and Memory in the Civil War Era. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: That's p r o k o p o w i c z g at ecu. edu. Now back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with Sarah J. Purcell, author of A Spectacle of Grief, Public Funerals and Memory in the Civil War Era. We've been talking about funerals of some famous and semi-famous people, Stonewall Jackson or Elmer Ellsworth, but now we're talking about George Peabody, the uh, philanthropist, uh, American living in the United Kingdom, who dies in 1870. His body is brought back, and I was fascinated to read of the competition essentially between the U.S. Navy and the Royal Navy, who gets to bring him back? Uh, And and it almost turns into an arms race.
3: uh, (laughs) Yeah, literally. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yes, um, uh, Peabody was given um, basically a state funeral in London and was temporarily interred in Westminster Abbey. Um, And then uh, Queen Victoria specially outfitted a warship, to repatriate his remains, and basically um, president grant and and a, a lot of other uh, con- congressmen and naval officials they didn't want they got caught sort of flat footed because it was like, well, all this for george Peabody, but they they had to throw in um, and um, basically they tried a few different things, but they ended up sending a, a naval um, escort they couldn 't Sort of wrest control of the remains from the British. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the British sent one of their most impressive warships. Um, in fact, the initial um, arrival um, in the United States had to be at Portland, Maine, because um, it was the only port deep enough to accept the British warship um, that was so large and heavy. So it, w- it was, Boston was not. Um, able to handle the ship, and so it was very, very interesting um, and then there's a whole series of ceremonies and um, you know firing off of salutes and the the captains uh, turning over the remains to the the British captain, turning them over to American authorities, and and you know Admiral Farragut is involved, and all all sorts of things, um, and um, you know Daniel Chamberlain in, in Maine, and just many many figures from the Civil War era are involved in this, and it becomes kind of a, a double a double ceremony set of ceremonies. So this competition between the British and the Americans, just at the time that they are fighting over the claims um, of basically reparations against the British for supporting the Confederacy and the Alabama um, <laughs> reparations in particular. Um, Portland, Maine, of course, had had been harassed by um, naval, I don't know, depredations from Confederates and supported by the British. Um, so this kind of content, literal contest between the British and the Americans and is there a way that this the body of George Peabody can sort of reunite or show some Anglo-American harmony in the face of that. And then it also takes on this contest because he was a Northerner who people could claim had forgiven Confederates. And so a lot of contest over whether he truly was a Northerner or was he really a shill for the Confederates. And so um, it's all bound up together, the the memory of, of and the relationship between the United States and Britain, and then also... The United States and the Confederacy, and kind of post-Confederate, um, during Reconstr- you know the mid-period of Reconstruction. So it's 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 a very um, interesting political contest over maybe an unlikely figure, this philanthropist George Peabody, who was not especially political himself but um, in the movement of his body and all of this funeral ceremony. And then even by that time, there were a few people who argued, like, boy, my gosh, we are going, this is all too much. Like, maybe this is just too much pomp and circumstance. Um, I think it, it was the first time that someone just totally questioned, why are we even doing all of this huge public ceremony?
1: And and doing it, uh, particularly for someone whose sympathy for the South was, was pronounced, uh... Tying things together here on Civil War Talk Radio, last week's guest was was Elizabeth Leonard, uh, and the subject of her new biography is, of course, Benjamin Butler, and yeah. he's one of those who votes against sending U.S. warships to help bring this body back. says, what are we doing all is for this Confederate sympathizer? So uh, right. Ben Butler shows up again, for listeners who heard about him last week. Uh there are many other interesting funerals you discuss in the book. We don't have time to go over all of them: Charles Sumner, uh, Joe Johnston, uh, Winnie Davis, and uh, we'll just go to the the last one, uh, Frederick Douglass, who you you cite as far back as Henry Clay. Uh, he has an opinion about that. He lives till 1895, and his funeral is 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 like the others, but different from the others.
3: Yes, um, it's, re- it's really remarkable. I mean, Douglas himself, as you mentioned, he's one of the figures who um, participates in public funerals and or critiques public funerals. He was someone who was attuned exquisitely to the politics of mourning and public memory, um, even before the war with Henry Clay, but certainly during and after the war. And the same attention he paid to uh, memories of the war, he paid to how they were expressed in funerals. And so it's quite extraordinary to see that carried out in his own funeral. It, it's it's very much the same in that he received a very large funeral in Washington, D.C., um, and yet it was different because he was a black man and he was formerly enslaved and that made a difference um and there's there's a lot of um overt discussion of the politics of race um the politics of racial uplift um miscegenation his his second wife who was white was very evident in the morning um and many many issues that are you know right on at the in the, in the thick of the rise of segregation and, and Jim Crow era, there in 1895, um, are talked about through Frederick Douglass, who right was someone who um, had always been, or at least since he had escaped slavery, had made himself into a symbol of, of um, people who were enslaved and even of the black race to a certain degree. And so his funeral was very, very important. Interestingly, importantly, he was not given a state funeral He was proposed to lie in state in the rotunda of the Capitol, but um, Mm -hmm. through parliamentary maneuvers, that was denied him. And so he had um, what was technically more of a private funeral um, at the Metropolitan AME Church in um, Georgetown, Washington, D.C., but um, it still was attended by thousands of people, um, Supreme Court justices, politicians, and his body traveled on a special train to Rochester, New York, um you know the the place where he got his political start um where he again received a huge huge public public funeral public ceremonies before he was interred, and then um the movement to mark his mark his fame in Rochester with a monument was also part of the mourning situation. It was definitely the largest outpouring of public and politicized grief for any black person. It was the first memorial monument to a black person in U.S. history. So, it, And then there's a lot of argument, some of which is very surprising and highly, highly politicized, um, yeah. especially in the South, um, over what, what all this mourning meant for Douglass. But the actual forms of the mourning are very, very familiar. They're a lot like what happened for Henry Clay or Abraham Lincoln, or even for Robert E. Lee or for George Peabody. I mean, the kinds of things, flowers, church services, parades, huge amounts of morning public, uh, newspapers, eulogies, obituaries, all of the forms are similar, but it takes um, a very interesting political and racialized turn in Douglass' case. And it shows a lot about the transition from the 19th century into the 20th century, and the complications of post-Civil War America moving into the new century.
1: The uh, the example you you give of what happens here in North Carolina, where I'm sitting, the, uh, the Fusionists are in command of the, the state legislature at that time. Republicans and Populists who uh, oppose the white supremacist Democrats, and they vote to to recognize. Douglass' death in some way. And and that leads to a false charge in the news, Democratic newspapers that somehow the legislature has voted to adjourn in honor of Douglas, but they didn't do for, so for Robert E. Lee. This is an outrage. Uh, even though the story is completely false, it gins up a huge amount of public outrage and ultimately ends up with a, an appropriation to build a giant Confederate monument in front of the state capitol in Raleigh. The idea of False newspaper or false media stories getting the public outraged leading to uh, uh actions like that was painfully uh contemporary i have to say reading that uh, it, it, Yeah, it's hard
3: absolutely to, and and also the the thought that um you know monuments uh might might be politicized right that the, they yeah exactly the kind of pure repository of Civil War memory, but and it's, it, I think, truly astounding in a way to think about, you know, from our current perspective, where we have a lot of debate over uh, Confederate monuments and even lots of other kinds of monuments, um, mm-hmm. to think that the what was the North Carolina um, Confederate monument was in part spurred on by Frederick Douglass's death and by the reactions to his funeral. Um, and so it's sort of, you know, the... Very large Civil War Confederate monument in North Carolina, and the very first monument to a formerly enslaved Black man in the United States, both come out of the discourse out of Douglas's funeral, um, and they're very much sort of of that moment in 1895, not 1865, um, and just had a lot to to say. And and then you know the, we can recognize a lot in that in that disc- you know that discourse. I think you're right. The fact that um, controversy um, can lead to some unexpected consequences, both politically and culturally.
1: It, it certainly does in that case. Uh, you talk about other funerals in here, uh, Charles Sumner, Joe Johnston, Robert E. Lee himself, and, uh, and, and Winnie Davis, the daughter of the Confederacy, the daughter of uh, Jefferson and Verena Davis. Uh, you end with that, and th- th- I would love to discuss all of them but uh, our time runs short. We have just a few minutes. Uh, If you could... This is a question I I like to ask folks on the show. If you could go back in time for 30 minutes in the Civil War talk radio time machine and visit with one person and come safely back, who would you choose?
3: Um, I I would choose Frederick Douglass, for sure. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that he... um, Saw and was central to so many activities and political situations, and and just the heart of the culture of the Civil War era. Um, And he lived such a long life, um, you know, going from spanning almost the entire 19th century. Um, And he was such a complicated person. He was not an infallible person, but he was someone who had great conviction and. Um, incredible um, just a personal qualities, while also, um, you know, as we've seen from David Blight's biography and lots of other books <laughs> about Douglas, um, uh, Lee Fott's uh, great book about Douglas and, and his relationship with women, um, he, he was a complicated man, but an incredible observer and a Someone who affected the course of United States history across the 19th century, um, and I think just extremely brave. So I, I guess I was my first reaction, my gut reaction is Frederick Douglass for sure. Plus, which he he appeared, you know, if if I'm interested in what I have written about here in this book, you know, he's someone who's there in every chapter. He's 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 got something to say about everything. So he would be a great I, I, I would hope I would need more than 30 minutes to talk to him in the time machine, but um, he knew it all. I think so. It was. It was, and he wasn't afraid of of really being polarizing, or you know, that was kind of the point in some ways.
1: No, he'd be, well, obviously an important and, and fascinating figure, and one that that would be 30 minutes well spent. Yeah. Well, this book, <laughs> uh, listeners, you will enjoy time spent with this book it will open your eyes to some new events and new characters in the civil war era the book is called spectacle of grief public funerals and memory in the civil war era the author is sarah j purcell who has been our guest tonight uh sarah thank you so much for joining me thank on you, civil Jerry. war I talk really radio i really appreciate
3: it i i really like the show and i appreciate you asking me on
1: <laughs> and listeners as always thank you for listening to civil war talk radio